Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Welcome back. A new week, a new interview. It is so great to have MJ Tro back with me again, a prolific author who has written over 100 books, including fiction and nonfiction. And I'm sure you'll remember him from a few weeks back when he spoke so eloquently about the alleged murder of Christopher Kit Marlowe, the Elizabethan playwright. And he is here in his second Most Notorious interview to talk about his book called The Killer of the Princes in the Tower, A New Suspect Revealed. Thank you so much for for joining me a second time. My pleasure. My pleasure. So this is a mystery that has been studied, debated for over 500 years now. Why do you think people are, are still so interested in the fate of these two boys? Well, for, to, to begin with, I think it's the it's the coldest of of cold cases. Uh, I think we're all fascinated by the, the cold case idea about going back to a crime that happened years ago. In this case, centuries ago, uh, especially where there's no answer, uh, and uh, trying to evaluate what just what the hell went on. Uh, it's easy, of course, with hindsight to see where. Uh, investigations uh, went in the wrong direction, where assumptions were made, uh, and in the case of the princes, why no murderer was ever identified. Uh, the other angle, of course, is that everybody thinks that uh, the case was solved, uh, that the murderer is Richard III because William Shakespeare said so, uh, and therefore, end of story. And uh, it's not that simple at all. Right. So where are we in British history when this all takes place? Sure, yeah, we're, we're talking about the, the, the 15th century, which relative to today was a very bloody time indeed. Uh, it's the period that's known in uh, England as the Wars of the Roses. Uh, 
We have uh, two rival families in the English aristocracy, the House of York and the House of Lancaster. Uh, traditionally, the House of York had a white rose as their badge and Lancaster had a red rose, hence Wars of the Roses. Uh, the problem was that the uh, king at the start of all this uh, was Henry VI, who uh, became king when he was nine months old. Uh, and even when he grew up and became an adult, he was incredibly weak. Uh, he wasn't very strong mentally. He was pushed around by his aristocracy, his nobles, uh, and uh, Basically, uh, people were, were tired of having uh, a weak king. You must appreciate that although there was a parliament in the 15th century, uh, they had no real powers unlike today. If you can imagine a situation in the States, perhaps, where you only have a president, where there is no uh, Senate, where there's no Congress, uh, you have government by one man, essentially. And that one man has got to be strong and he's got to be seen to be strong. And Henry VI was not that man. So what we have is a power struggle between uh, various nobles, York on one side, Lancaster on the other, uh, and they are battling for the throne. Both of them want to become king. Eventually, the man who almost got there was Richard, Duke of York, uh, but in fact, um, he didn't quite make it. He was killed in battle in Wakefield in 1461. So uh, his son, Edward IV, uh, became king in his place. So Edward IV replaced Henry VI and almost certainly had him murdered in the Tower of London so that there would be no rivals. Uh, Edward himself was a, a playboy. He was a, an excellent general. He was what we call in England, Jack the Lad. He liked to drink. He liked women. Uh, he ate far too much. He drank far too much. And basically, he drank himself to death by the time he was 40. This was in April 1483. Now, that left a similar problem. Uh, in England to the one they'd already had with Henry VI, because Edward IV had two sons, but they were both children. One was Edward, the Prince of Wales, the elder one. He was uh, nearly 13, and his little brother Richard, Duke of York, who was only nine. So uh, Edward, as things happened in those days, automatically became King Edward V, on the death of his father, Edward IV. The problem, of course, was that everybody wanted to control the new king. Because he was only so young, adults decided that wouldn't work. We need to be able to sort out what's going on. So we have, once again, two armed camps. On the one hand, we have Edward IV's brother, Richard of Gloucester, who was officially the protector of the royal princes. And on the other hand, we have Elizabeth Woodville and her family, uh, who was the mother of the two boys. Uh, and that is where the problem really begins. Who is going to control the young king? Will it be Richard of Gloucester? Will it be the Woodville family? So I know that there's not a lot of information out there about Prince Edward and Prince Richard, what they look like, what their personalities were like. What do we know? What, what can you tell us about them? 
Sure. This is the trouble, of course, with children in the Middle Ages because of their, their sheer youth. We, we don't have much information. Edward uh, was a relatively scholarly boy, but he was also, as you might expect, with a, a father like Edward IV, uh, kind of full of himself. He had a lot of, a lot of confidence uh, and uh, he was sent away to a place called Ludlow, which is on the Welsh border between Wales and England. There's a castle there. It's still there today. Day, uh, and that is where Edward was brought up and trained to be a prince. He would have uh, learnt um, English, obviously, reading and writing. He would have learnt French. He would have learned Latin, possibly even Greek. Uh, and uh, he'd have learned to be able to fight, to be able to handle a sword and a lance, because one day, as king, he would need to be able to do all those things. His little brother Richard uh, wasn't sent with him. Richard was kept behind in London, um, looked after by his mother, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and according to all accounts, he was much jollier lad. He was happy and laughing and liked to dance and, and play, uh, whereas Edward is, is much more adult, if you like. He's much more grown up, I think. Probably because he had to be. Um, it must have been very, very tough uh, to, to be in that position. Uh, and I'm sure some of your readers will have been following with, with fascination what's going on with our royal family at the moment. Um, with um, uh, Prince Harry and the spare and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's always been uh, a problem, rivalry between brothers uh, in, in a royal circle. According to accounts, Edward and Richard got on perfectly well. They didn't fight with each other. They, did, they didn't squabble. But then, of course, they hardly knew each other because they'd been separated when they were really very little uh, and spent several years in, in different places. So when Edward IV dies, the machinations, of course, begin. Edward IV's brother, Richard, who will later become Richard III, the young prince, Edward, is his ward, and they're not in London when the king dies. No, they're not. They're not. And you, ha you have this hectic scene, and it's very confusing. We don't quite know what happened. The idea was that Edward, the new king, would be brought um, on horseback from Ludlow down to London to be crowned king. Coronation was, was very important, and it was set for uh, early May. Um, he was being brought there by his uncle, uh, Lord Rivers, a member of the Woodville family, uh, and uh, an escort. Woodville was coming south with 2,000 men. Now, that looks like a private army, and it was. Uh, and the idea was that he was going to bully his way into London. Uh, here is my nephew. He's the new king. You must all bow down and uh, pay him homage. Uh, Richard of Gloucester, however, wants to uh, do that himself. It's uh, according to Edward IV's will, it was his job to protect both princes, but in this case, Edward. So what he did was to come from much further north, where he had a number of castles, and uh, he intercepted uh, rivers and the, the new king at a place called Stony Stratford, which is between Ludlow and London. Uh, and basically, he grabbed the boy. Uh, he had Rivers uh, and his uh, men arrested, and they were sent to Richard's castles in the north. 
So the boy king does come to London. He reached London on the 4th of May, but he is in the care now of his uncle Richard of Gloucester, not his uncle Earl Rivers. Right. And coincidentally, uh, conveniently, once they return to London, at the moment when everyone assumes, including young Prince Edward, that he is to be made king, a piece of information surfaces that nullifies the boy's legitimate claim to the throne, correct? Absolutely. What, what happened was that um, Bishop Stillington, one of the senior churchmen at the time, you, you appreciate that England was a, a Catholic country in those days, uh, and the Catholic Church was immensely powerful. Um, Bishop Stillington came out with an absolute bombshell because he told everybody, especially Parliament, uh, that um, Edward IV had been married before his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. He married a lady called Eleanor Butler. Uh, it was a bigamous marriage uh, because he, he was already married to Eleanor when he married Elizabeth. But what it meant was that all uh, his and Elizabeth's children were automatically illegitimate. That meant that the two princes, Edward and Richard, could not become king because of that illegitimacy. That was the law of the land, uh, and therefore there was only one person left who could possibly become king, and that was Richard of Gloucester, uh, Edward IV's only surviving brother. There was another brother that um, uh, some of our listeners may have heard of, the Duke of Clarence, but he uh, was executed in 1478. According to legend, he was drowned in a vat of wine in the Tower of London. We don't know if that's true or not, but he was certainly executed, not as Shakespeare would have us believe, because of the machinations of Richard of Gloucester, but because of an order from Edward IV. It's, it's true, right, that during Edward IV's reign, his brother Richard had been very loyal to him. Yes, Richard seems to have been an incredibly loyal brother to Edward. Uh, his motto was loyalty mali, which means loyalty binds me, loyalty ties me. Uh, and I think he very much believed in, in that, despite Shakespeare's destruction of the man, turning him into a, a fantastic pantomime villain. Uh, I think Richard was a very straight guy. He, he uh, was honest and God-fearing, um, and all his life he supported Edward um, and Edward's boys too, his, his sons. Um, he fought on uh, Edward's side in a number of major battles, uh, risking his life. And uh, yeah, he, he, he does seem to have been genuinely upset when Edward and Clarence fell out. Clarence was a very shaky brother indeed. He, he did rebel against Edward probably through reasons of sheer jealousy. Uh, and in that fight, Richard keeps out of it. He, he doesn't take sides. Um, what happened was that Richard had a number of castles in the north of England. Uh, and so he, he went up there 
and uh, ran his own setup in the north and just let Edward get on with it, really. But whenever Edward needed him, he came south. He took part in various um, celebrations and ceremonies and so on, because after all, he, he was a Duke of the Blood Royal and he was expected to, to do these duties. Right, right. So soon after this showdown begins, between Richard and his sister-in-law, Elizabeth Woodville, she flees with, with the young Richard and seeks sanctuary. Yep. The idea of sanctuary is that you go into a, a church, uh, a, a holy building, and, and there you are safe. Uh, you are literally uh, in, in God's care, uh, and uh, no man is allowed to violate that sanctuary. Nobody could go in and just grab Elizabeth or her kids. Um, that's the theory, and in, in practice, she wasn't. Uh, molested in any way. There have been examples earlier in English history where that didn't happen, but in this case, she seems to have been left alone. She went uh, with her family into Westminster Abbey in London, uh, and there they, they stayed. She, so she has one boy with her, Richard of York, and her daughters, and uh, Richard of Gloucester has the other boy, Edward V, uh, who he puts in the Tower of London itself. So basically, Richard has Edward and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth has the other Richard, Richard of York. So why does Elizabeth hand her son over to her brother-in-law, do you think? Yeah, that, that, that is an extremely good question, Eric, and it's, it's the one that nobody has been able to answer. If Richard of Gloucester was the monster that Shakespeare made him out to be, and I keep saying Shakespeare, but everybody, everybody who wrote for the Tudors later blackened Richard's reputation. They made him into a monster. They made him into a child killer. Um, if that is true, why on earth would Elizabeth Woodville have handed over her other boy into his keeping? It doesn't make any sense at all, unless Richard of Gloucester is not a monster. He did not intend to kill the boys, and Elizabeth knew that perfectly well. So the two boys are housed in the Tower of London. Can you describe the Tower of London during this time and where those boys would have been held within its walls and who would have watched over them? Yep. Um, if, if any of your listeners have been to the Tower, and I'm, sh I'm sure uh, quite a few of them have, it's changed incredibly uh, over the centuries. Uh, in the 15th century, it was an incredibly busy place. Uh, it, it will seem that way now because of the tourists. Obviously, there were no tourists in the 15th century, but there were hundreds of people moving about the castle all the time. It's right on the banks, north bank of the uh, River Thames. Uh, it was a royal mint. They printed money there. Uh, it was a garrison. There were soldiers there all the time. Uh, it even had its own zoo. Uh, with wild animals. It, it was an incredibly busy place, people coming and going constantly. The princes were housed, we're not quite sure where, at first probably in the Wakefield Tower, which was one of the towers nearest to, to the river. The way you got into the castle in those days was not from the landward side at all, but from the river. You came by boat uh, and you went under what is today called Traitor's Gate, it was actually Henry III's Watergate. You went in that way uh, and um, into the buildings themselves. 
Um, next to Wakefield Tower were the Royal Apartments. Now, these have gone. There's no sign of them at all now. It's just a, a grassy area. There's a, a gift shop underneath uh, where the uh, Royal Apartments used to be. But the Royal Apartments were there, and this is where the boys almost certainly slept. They would have had lessons. They would have played. Uh, we know that people saw them playing in the in, in the gardens they were firing bows and arrows they, they were well looked after uh, perfectly happy having a, a, a whale of a time at some point there seems to have been an attempt to release them to break them out now details on this are very very vague indeed we only have the odd reference to it several years later but I'm convinced that the plan at least was there. And so Richard uh, of Gloucester had the boys moved from the, the royal uh, buildings into the White Tower itself. Now, this is the central part of the Tower of London. Uh, it's the keep, strongest part. At its base, the walls are 20 feet thick. Um, and obviously, this is the most difficult part of the castle to, to take. So that in case there was an attempt to get the princes out, uh, then those who were trying to do it would have a hell of a difficult job getting into the White Tower to break them out. And they were attended to... They uh, had an army of servants, um, possibly up to 30 servants um, who, who did everything for them cooked, cleaned, everything along those lines. This was so until the, the 18th of um, July. And on that day, it looked as if most of the servants were, were dismissed. We, we have the paperwork uh, still, which says that they got uh, what today we'd call severance pay, I suppose. They, they were told, thank you, we don't need your services anymore. Here you go, here's some money, go away. Uh, leaving the princes to be uh, protected by four guards. Exactly who those four guards were, we don't know. Uh, it's possible that one of them was called Forrest. Uh, another was called Dighton. These were the two men who Shakespeare says uh, murdered the boys. Um, but we honestly don't know their names. We will be back in just a moment. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Revis Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Wheel of urine! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So the new king, Richard III, was away, correct? When the boys disappeared? Yep. On the 19th, uh, the, the, the coronation took place on the 6th of July. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, becomes King Richard III. Uh, uh, Westminster Abbey was the scene of the service, and then there was a big, uh, a big uh, bash afterwards, a party, lots of music and dancing, the, the usual thing. On the nineteenth of July, Richard and his wife Queen Anne uh, went on a royal progress again. Today, we're used to seeing our leaders all the time on TV, aren't we? We see, we see the president, we see prime minister, we see kings, queens, whatever um, on on TV almost on a daily basis. Uh, well, that wasn't the case clearly in the fifteenth century. So the only way in which a new king could um, announce himself, if you'd like to, is was to travel, was to go around the countryside. This is called a royal progress, and that was what Richard and Anne did. They went from London uh, up the River Thames, then they went across country, uh, working their way through the Midlands to the north, and the idea was to come back again in a big circle to London. And it's while they're on that royal progress that news probably reached Richard. We don't have any hard information on this, but it probably reached Richard that the boys had disappeared. Not that they were dead, but that they had disappeared. So besides Shakespeare's account of this, Sir Thomas More writes about this as well, and he fingers Richard III as the man who planned. Yep, okay. Uh, Let's go back a few years. Um, one of the uh, leading churchmen who hated Richard of Gloucester was uh, Cardinal Morton. And Morton survived Richard. He lived for several years. And in his household, uh, there was uh, a young lad called Thomas More. Uh, Thomas More went on to become a qualified lawyer. Uh, he was a, a very, very bright, some said brilliant man. Uh, He was deeply religious. uh, And uh, in 1513, Thomas More wrote, uh, the only account we have of the murder of the princes. Now, his information almost certainly came from Cardinal Morton, who, remember, hated Richard. So what we have is completely biased view of what happened. We don't have a Ricardian view. We don't have the story from Richard's side at all, only from the side of his opponents. And it's Thomas More who talks about the murder itself. What More says is that uh, a man named James Tyrrell was uh, a lackey of Richard's. He he was a a royal servant. uh, And uh, he was sent for by, by Richard. And this is in Shakespeare's play, and Richard asks Tyrrell to kill the the boys because he doesn't want them alive. He can't take the chance 
of there being any kind of attempts to free them, any kind of rallying to uh, the elder boy Edward rather than to him. And so Tyrrell uh, goes to London. This apparently happened in Warwick, which is about two days' ride from, from London. Tyrrell rides to, to London. Uh, he gets access to the tower. Uh, he pays these two men, Dighton and Forrest, whether they were actually two of the royal guards or not, we don't know. Uh, but he, he pays these two men to kill the boys. And according to uh, Thomas More, Tyrrell did it by suffocating them. He put, they put, he put pillows uh, over their mouths as they were asleep. Then the bodies, and this is always the problem, of course, in, in murder. What the hell do you do with, with the body? Uh, the bodies had to be got rid of. So the idea was that they should be um, hidden in the tower, buried somewhere under a, a wall, under some steps, uh, and leave it at that. But it wasn't quite like that. Uh, a priest in the tower who knew that this had happened took pity on the boys' bodies uh, and moved the bodies from their original burial place to somewhere else in the tower. Again, we don't know where. So according to Thomas More, who got it from Morton, uh, and Shakespeare picks up later in the century, uh, that's what happened. The boys were murdered on the orders of Richard III, they were suffocated, uh, and they were buried somewhere in the tower precincts. James Tyrrell confesses, though, right, L later in his life, to the murders? Yep. James Tyrrell was a loyal supporter of Richard III, but when Richard was killed at the Battle of Bosworth in August 1485, Henry of Richmond, Henry Tudor, became King Henry VII. Uh, and um, Tyrrell seems to have worked perfectly amicably for him as well. But then things got a bit sticky, and we don't quite know why, because in 1502, Henry VII had Tyrrell arrested on charges of treason and had him executed. And before he died, according to Henry VII, uh, Tyrrell confessed to the murder of the princes. What is odd about this is that one of the two men, John Dighton, was still walking around, large as life, quite free in London in 1502, and no action was taken against him whatsoever. Forrest had already died, apparently, of natural causes. So we only, in other words, have the word of Henry VII, who was a deeply paranoid person in his own right, uh, that Tyrrell was responsible. Nobody else says that he was, uh, and there's no hard evidence at all. Yeah. So typically, correct, in the late Middle Ages, when a political opponent was killed, the person who killed them would want to make sure that the citizens of the country knew that the person was in fact dead, to squash any rumors, uh, so they would display the head, etc. But, but nothing like that ever happened with, with these boys, of course. Richard III was silent about them. That's exactly right. When, when Richard himself was killed at, at the Battle of, of Bosworth, his body was taken to Leicester, the nearest city, and it was put on display uh, on a riverbank for two days. 
before it, it was buried. When Edward IV had died uh, back in, uh, in April 1483, his body was on display for three days so that people, as you say, could uh, see him and uh, uh, realise that, yes, it was true that the king actually was dead. You would expect, therefore, if the boys were dead, that their bodies would have been shown. If Richard of Gloucester, Richard III, was guilty, it's not likely he would have done that. Or would he? Because after all, if the boys were genuinely suffocated, there'd be virtually no forensic marks on them at all. Today, with modern forensic science and autopsy and so on, yes, we could tell whether someone has been suffocated, but they couldn't in the 15th century. So all we would have are the bodies of two boys. And I can't tell you how full of disease London was uh, in the 15th century. Death was everywhere. Outbreaks of disease were incredibly common. Uh, so it wouldn't be at all surprising that two boys should die. If one of them became ill, the other one would become ill as well. And Richard would have had a golden opportunity to have shown these two bodies to say to the world, look, isn't this dreadful? My, my nephews have died of sweating sickness or the plague or any one of a dozen such diseases. He didn't do that. In fact, he says nothing about the princes at all. And it's that silence that I find extraordinary. Richard was an intelligent man. If he'd had the boys killed, he would have dreamed up some kind of story to explain what had happened to them. He never did. And he never did because he didn't know what had happened to them. It wouldn't have been smart for Richard to kill the boys in the sense that he would have known full well that that would have driven a further wedge between his family and the Woodvilles, right? Increasing the likelihood that the Woodvilles would throw their support to his enemies. That, that's ex exactly so. Uh, and the Wars of the Roses would have gone on forever with York versus Lancaster. Y yes, uh, that, that's absolutely true. And remember that, that Richard, I, I, I believe, was a, a straight, honest, upright man. If Stillington had come out with his story, the man was a bishop, he was uh, a doctor of canon law, he was a highly respected individual. Why would he have made this story up? Um, there was no need for Richard to have killed his princes. They were already illegitimate. They couldn't possibly become king. Um, so he doesn't really have a motive. But Richard was still responsible for them. If nothing else, he was negligent in not protecting them. Absolutely. Yes, yes, he was. You, you, you can't deny that they died under Richard's watch. Uh, he should have taken better care of them. We don't exactly know why he reduced their um, guard from those 30 men down to four. Um, and I, I think he must carry the, the blame for that. Absolutely. But that's a very different thing, of course, from accusing him of having the boys murdered. Now, there, there are a number of people who very vocally believe that the boys were not, in fact, killed in the tower. Some believe that Prince Richard survived, and we can talk about Perkin Warbeck in a moment. But others argue that Prince Edward slash Edward V survived as well, correct, and lived out his life in seclusion. There's something called the Missing Princes Project out there, which argues that he lived 
until his 40s uh, under a new name in, in some village somewhere in the English countryside. Yes, yeah, I, I, absolutely so. And it's the, it's the endless story. This You, you find this throughout his, history, don't you? Any, any uh, key people, whether they're great men or women or, or whether they're children, uh, nobody really wants to uh, admit that, that they're dead. In, in Britain, we have the legendary King Arthur, uh, who was supposedly sleeping under a mountain, waiting for uh, the, the time when his country needs him again, and he will come riding to our rescue. It's a little bit like that with the boys, that they were smuggled out of the tower, sometime presumably in the summer of 1483, and that they lived happily ever after somewhere else. Um, it would have made sense if Richard wanted them dead, or if anybody wanted them dead for that matter, to separate them uh, so that uh, people wouldn't be looking for two, two teenagers together. They'd be looking for one teenager in one place and one in, in another, which would make them more difficult to find. Uh, there are a number of, of theories in Henry VII's reign. Uh, there were two um, people, one of whom you, you just mentioned. Uh, one had the unlikely name of Lambert Simnel, the other one Perkin Warbeck. Uh, and both these boys claimed to be uh, one or other of the princes. Uh, in fact, they were both frauds and they were found to be frauds during their own time. The first one, Lambert Simnel, seems to be a fairly harmless soul. And Henry VII took him on as one of his own staff. He made him the royal falconer in, in charge of the royal the royal birds of prey. The other one, Perkin Warbeck, was rather more dangerous. He had support from a number of uh, members of the nobility, the Yorkists, uh, and um, Henry VII had him executed. Uh, but there are a number of supposed sightings of young Richard and uh, young Edward uh, in the years after 1483. How many of them, if any of them, uh, are accurate, I don't know. Almost a kind of wish fulfillment that those who wanted the princes to have survived would have jumped on any, anything at all that would have made it seem a possibility. Uh, there is, for example, uh, a famous painting of Thomas More and his family by the court portrait painter Hans Holbein, who painted uh, every Tudor king, Henry VII, Henry VIII, so on. He's a brilliant artist, and he painted Thomas More and his family. Um, they're, they're all sitting there in their, in, in their robes, and there is one character um, in the background. He's half hidden by a curtain. And uh, one source believes that that is actually Richard of York, is the younger brother uh, who didn't die in the tower, but went on to become a secretary to Thomas More. Um, there is no hard evidence for this whatsoever. Uh, the man has another name, but then you'd expect that. But looking at the portrait, which was painted in 1528, uh, he's much too young. Uh, by 1528, Edward uh, uh, Richard of York would have been nearly 50. Uh, this is clearly a young man in his 20s. So uh, I don't think that that makes any sense either. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Henry VII would eventually marry a sister of the princes, and she would have likely recognized uh, or rejected Perkin Warbeck as her 
brother, assumably. Is, is there any information out there that gives us a hint as to what she might have thought about Perkin Warbeck? As far as I know, there's nothing on this at all. You're absolutely right. Um, Henry of, of Richmond, having defeated Richard III at, at the Battle of Bosworth, became King Henry VII, and he married Elizabeth uh, Woodville Jr., that is, um, the elder sister of the princes. Um, so yes, she she would have known straight away uh, that Lambert Simlaw and Perkin Warbeck were not her, her brothers, obviously, because she knew them very well. She knew Richard of York better than she knew Edward because she'd been in sanctuary with him uh, and had lived with him um, all, all her life. Edward, she didn't know quite so well, but even so, she'd have met him several times. They were brother and sister. And there's no record uh, of any comments from her at all. Um, Elizabeth is one of those uh, annoying people in the Middle Ages who doesn't say anything. The, the trouble is with um, the, uh, the the past, uh, as we know all too well, is that it's largely about men and is written by men. Uh, and women hardly ever get a look in. There were some very feisty women in this period. Uh, Elizabeth uh, Rivers, the elder, in other words, the queen, Edward IV's wife, was uh, one such woman. Um, so was the mother of Henry VII, uh, she actually gave birth to her son when she was 13, uh, and uh, all her life she, she backed him, supported him, helped him to become king. Uh, you've got extraordinary women like that. And then you've got women like uh, the other Elizabeth Woodville, the, uh, the Henry VII's queen, who by all accounts are incredibly nice, a really lovely, generous and, and supportive person. But she's not feisty. She's not strong. She's not outspoken. So we don't know, honestly, what her views were on anything. Right. So I, I do want to ask you about Henry, the man who would eventually become Henry VII. Uh, he, he was in exile, I believe, when the princess disappeared, but his mother was nearby. And some think that Henry might have been responsible for whatever happened to the, the princes uh, or his, his mother, who, who might have aided her son in ridding him of the boys in order to clear the way for an attempt at the crown? Sure. Um, what, what happened was that uh, Henry, Henry of Richmond, Henry Tudor, uh, was was somebody who, who um, laid a claim to the throne. Now, you and I have a stronger claim to the throne of England than Henry Tudor. Okay, um, he was nobody. His his claim was incredibly weak. He was descended on both sides of his family from earlier Plantagenet kings, but uh, the line had been broken uh, with illegitimacy, which meant again, like the princes and Stillington, uh, it was impossible for him actually to become king. He ignored that completely uh, and kept claiming that he did have uh, a, a rightful place. Most of his life was spent uh, in exile. Um, because the Tudors are a Welsh family, he claimed to be Welsh. He was born in Wales, but actually he, he wasn't Welsh. He couldn't speak Welsh. He had almost nothing to do with Wales at all. Uh, and he seems to have spent most of his time trying to get support, first of all, from the Duke of Brittany in France, and then from the King of France himself. Now, there's been a long history, many centuries of warfare between England and France, and any chance that the French court had 
to get their own back on the English court would be absolutely great. So Henry was given a couple of ships and he was given some men uh, and some equipment. Um, he, he hired some German mercenaries and he came across to England. In fact, he tried to land twice and failed. Third time, uh, he, he made it. He marched inland, met Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth and defeated him, not by great generalship, but by actually bad luck on Richard's part. Before that, we have his mother, uh, who is in London throughout the whole period, and she is lobbying, if you like, for her little boy. She wants Henry to get his uh, earldom of Richmond back, um, which had been taken from him many years before. Uh, that seems to have grown from the earldom of Richmond to, well, why not let's have Henry as king? Hence the ludicrous claim that he should have been king of England all along. Uh, a number of um, discontented lords supported him. They joined him on his march to Bosworth and they fought for him at the battle. So they, of course, became elevated and uh, Henry became Henry VII, the first of the Tudor kings. Now, if Richard had not had the princes done away with, if the princes were still alive, in the summer of 1485, after the Battle of Bosworth, you can imagine the shock when Henry turned up in the Tower of London to find these two boys standing there looking at him, because both of them had a far stronger claim to the throne than he did. One of them was the son of a king, for God's sake. Well, they were both sons of kings. Um, so did Henry have them murdered? He had a far stronger motive than Richard of Gloucester. As far as Richard was concerned, the boys had been declared illegitimate. One of the first thing that, the things that Henry does is to make all the children of Edward IV legitimate again so that he can marry Elizabeth, the boy's eldest sister. If he makes Elizabeth legitimate, he has got to make, if they're still alive, Edward and Richard legitimate. And that, of course, would take the throne away from him straight away. So does Henry have them killed? And you write in your book that it wouldn't have been that difficult for someone to kill the boys. It, it might have been as easy as slipping some poison into their food. Dispatching them that way would have made it difficult to, to trace back to someone like Henry's mother, for instance. Yes, that's exactly right. They, I, I think that it, it is likely that the actual um, murderers would be uh, close to the boys, people who were known in the tower. You're not going to have a stranger wandering in at all hours of, of the day and night and getting access to these boys and killing them. But if it was somebody who was there already, somebody who was known, uh, somebody who was not in any way suspicious, then that person, if that person was in, in the pay of Margaret Beaufort, that's Henry's mother, uh, or Henry himself, whether he is personally present in London or not, then that would work, yes. And to, to, to kill young boys, yeah, it, it, it must be very, very easy. Uh, there were a number of means that anybody's disposal. Suffocation we've mentioned, poison would be another angle, a straight beating to death or cutting throats. Um, I, I don't know if, if your listeners know this, but uh, th there's a great deal of fuss in Britain at the moment about an increase in knife crime. Uh, the, the, the number of people who are being stabbed uh, 
particularly in in London, uh, sort of gang warfare, that kind of thing. Well, knife crime was infinitely worse in the Middle Ages because literally every male carried a knife. They carried a dagger and many of them were quite prepared to use it. So what about the Duke of Buckingham? Who is he and what would have been his motive for murdering the princes? Henry Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, was uh, a mate of Richard of Gloucester. Uh, He's a rather shadowy character. He doesn't really emerge until um, 1483, when when the the whole hoo-ha builds up with the death of Edward IV. Um, But he, too, was a Plantagenet. Uh, He, too, had a claim to the throne, uh, and it's quite possible that uh, he wanted to become king. In the Shakespeare version, uh, he backs Richard all the way, but not over the murder of the princes. When Richard decides to kill the boys, that's a step too far for Buckingham. Uh, And so Buckingham turns against him, rebels against him. This was in October 1483, uh, and the rebellion fails. There was appallingly bad weather in that month, and Richard was a very able general. He outmaneuvered Buckingham. Buckingham was captured and executed uh, in the city of Salisbury. His motive is quite thin, really, even assuming he wanted to to become king, which is entirely possible. He was arrogant and uh, ambitious. He would have had to have got rid of Richard first. Uh, It's a bit of a backdoor way of doing it. Assuming the princes were still alive, there were three people between um, Buckingham and the throne, the two boys and Richard of Gloucester. Now, the two boys would be fairly easy to get rid of, but Richard of Gloucester wouldn't be. He was a highly competent general. He was the king of England by now. He had an army. And uh, that surely should have been Buckingham's main target, which perhaps it was in his rebellion of October. But to kill the princes first, in the very unlikely hope that he could beat Richard, seems to be a rather odd way of going about it. So, again, there's no hard evidence really against Buckingham at all. Back again after these brief messages. And we have returned once more. So you mentioned earlier that that someone close to the princes with access to their lives would have had the best opportunity to make them go away. And one of those people close to them would have been their doctor. Would you tell us about Dr. John Argentine and how he became connected to the royal family? and why you think that he might have been involved in their deaths. Sure. John Argentine wasn't known about. He's he's not in the record at all uh, until the 1930s, when uh, an historian called Armstrong came across him by chance for some other research he was doing in France, uh, and he came across his name. Now, There was in England during Richard's reign uh, an an Italian visitor, Dominic Mancini. Mancini was almost certainly a spy uh, for uh, an Italian nobleman. And um, he, Mancini, spoke no English. He spoke Latin because he was a priest. Uh, 
uh, and obviously he spoke Italian and he seems to have mixed with the little uh, group of Italian merchants who lived in London at the time. He never met Richard. We don't even know if he even saw him. Uh, but the people he spoke to, who would presumably have been Lancastrian supporters, had nothing good to say about Richard at all. Um, there were hints that uh, he is having the um, boys kept away from public life and, of course, eventually killed. So Mancini wrote his own account uh, of, of all this uh, in, in Latin, and uh, it was called The Occupation of the Throne of England by Richard III. And this document lay undiscovered until the 1930s by Professor Armstrong. But Armstrong misread the Latin. He saw the word Argentorum and thought that Argentorum was Strasbourg, the city in Germany, uh, which is Argentorum. So he assumed that this doctor came from Germany, that he was, he was a German doctor working in England, which isn't too surprising. That kind of thing happened all the time uh, because um, there were only two universities in England, Oxford and Cambridge, uh, and many of the European universities were better. So why not then a doctor from Strasbourg? Well, for a start, there was no university at Strasbourg uh, in the 1480s, neither was there a school of medicine. And what Armstrong had done was simply to mis misread the surname. The surname was Argentine. It was nothing to do with Strasbourg whatsoever. And the Argentines were English, or at least Normans, they, the family came over with William the Conqueror in 1066, and they had been um, royal servants on and off in a variety of ways for many centuries. John Argentine um, went to Eton, uh, which is one of the oldest schools in the country. Uh, it was a boys' school then, and indeed was a boys' school until very recently. Uh, it's what we in this country call a public school, and in America you know them as private schools. And Argentine went from there to King's College, Cambridge. Now, both of those foundations, both Eton and King's College, Cambridge, were founded by King Henry VI. Uh, which is where we started, if you remember, whose, whose weakness caused the Wars of the Roses in the first place. Why Argentine went in for medicine, we don't know. Uh, there seems to be no one else in his family who had, but he did. And you must appreciate that in the 15th century, medicine was mumbo jumbo. It was nonsense. It wasn't science as we now know it. It was based on cosmology. It was based on the um, planets, on the stars, on uh, events being controlled by those stars as much as any physical symptoms. So don't expect Argentine or anybody else to be a brilliant doctor. There weren't any by modern standards at all. By the standards of their day, of course, they were revered and thought to be important people. Argentine got the job with the royal family because of family connections. Uh, his cousin was a man named Allington, who was already working in the household of Edward IV. So when Edward IV's boys are born, he's looking around for a, a doctor to uh, look after them. And Allington suggests his cousin John, who is newly qualified from the University of Cambridge and the University of Padua in northern Italy. Brilliant. So John Argentine becomes doctor to Edward, Prince of Wales. And when Edward IV died, automatically Argentine is bumped up. Edward 
the Prince of Wales is now Edward V, he's the king, and so Argentine is the king's doctor, the most famous doctor in the land, the best paid, uh, and I can imagine that someone like Argentine would have basked uh, in that kind of fame. So Argentine was likely very dismayed, angry, uh, when he learned that he would not become the most famous, powerful doctor in the country, but would instead be relegated to take care of the princes in the Tower of London. And Mancini could well have been talking to Argentine during this time. It's hinted at in, in the reports he submits to his superior, because Mancini seems to have some very personal information about Prince Edward specifically, information about his poor health in the days leading up to his disappearance. That's absolutely right. Uh, yes, you're, you're quite right. Uh, when Edward came down from Ludlow to London, uh, we can imagine that Argentine, uh, as his doctor, would have been with him. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Stillington bombshell and uh, Richard of Gloucester becomes the king. Uh, and suddenly, the king's doctor is now, yet again, the doctor of a prince who has no power. Edward is uh, illegitimate. He's nobody. He is the Lord Edward, which is nothing at all. Uh, he can't have liked that one little bit. But yes, when we have the account in Mancini, that uh, is almost certainly from Argentine. Argentine is the only source that Mancini gives. In other words, the only person that he spoke to was John Argentine. Who else would know uh, how the boys were doing in the last days of their lives? This would have been uh, August or September 1483. And he doesn't say much, if anything, about Richard, but about Edward, he says that he was very melancholy. He was very sad. He had a a presentiment of death. Uh, He felt he was going to die. And uh, he he didn't eat properly. He didn't look after himself. He he didn't even tie his shoelaces. Now, this I find quite fascinating because that kind of melancholy, that misery, that sense of of doom is associated very closely uh, with mercury poisoning. And that person that would have administered that mercury, you speculate, would have been the doctor, Dr. John Argentine. Dr. John Argentine carrying in his little medical bag a file of mercury and a number of other poisons too, which he could have administered to both boys um, over a period, I would think, of probably three or four days, a little bit each day. Nobody would have questioned him. There were no other doctors there at all. Nobody else knew what Argentine was, was doing. If they challenged him, he would simply have said, this is a remedy, the boys aren't, aren't terribly well, uh, and this will make them feel better. And nobody would have been able to dispute that. Well, the, the question many of my listeners might be asking themselves right now, why? Why would he do this? Uh, absolutely, why? And the, the answer is incredibly complicated. Really, you, there have been umpteen books written on this, uh, n- not history books, but books on psychology and psychiatry. That there is one professional group in society who are responsible for more murders than any other, and that is doctors. And it is partially because they can. They kill because they can. 
They have access to poisons. They have access to drugs. They have access to things that most of us don't understand. And they know how to cover up their crimes. In my book, I give a number of examples uh, of such people, uh, both in um, the UK and in the States, uh, where this has been the case. Uh, in some cases, th these, of course, are cases we know about, where in most instances, Dr. Concerned was found guilty and uh, was punished accordingly, usually by execution in the past. Not always, though. Some of them got run away with it. And of course, what about the other doctors who we don't know anything about at all, because they have got away with it so cleanly, their names don't even appear in the record. Our most prolific serial killer in the UK is Harold Shipman. He was responsible for possibly as many as 213 murders. Some say more. They were all his patients. They all died in mysterious circumstances. And that death rate is far higher than any other general practitioner in the country. Shipman was uh, put on trial. He was found guilty of murder, uh, but he took his own life before he could actually start his sentence. And experts who looked into Shipman, as experts who have looked into other medical murderers, um, have hit upon what I think is behind Argentine's uh, killing spree. It's three things. It's narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. There are an awful lot of narcissists in, in the world. Uh, they tend to be um, businessmen, they tend to be politicians, they tend to be film stars, sports personalities. They are people at the top of their profession uh, who get where they uh, are by ruthless competitiveness. Uh, they don't behave like most of us do. They, they don't have a soft side. They don't empathize with other people. It's all about them. Psychopathy, I think, speaks for itself. Again, uh, you don't live within the usual universe. The, the notions of right and wrong don't fit at all. Um, you, you have your own worldview, and it, it is not the worldview of the world. That doesn't sound too peculiar. Machiavellianism is based on, of course, Niccolo Machiavelli, who was actually writing uh, his famous book, The Prince, more or less the same time that Thomas More was writing his account of Richard killing the boys in the tower. Uh, I feel sorry for Niccolo Machiavelli because uh, he was only recording what a number of Italian princes actually did in his own day. People like Cesare Borgia, for example, who were ruthless in getting rid of opposition, in murdering people. And so if you are Machiavellian, then you follow that line of reasoning. Put those three things together. Narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, often called the dark triad. And what you have is the God complex. In other words, doctors are God. They hold the power of life and death. They can get away with murder because nobody can catch them. They are so skilled at what they do. Again, narcissism better than anybody else, uh, that nobody can catch them. And that sense of power, that sense of being able to kill and to get away with it, the God complex, uh, is something which is very, very often found in medical murderers. 
and I think John Argentine was one of the first of these. The fact that he wasn't caught, the fact that he wasn't even suspected, the fact that I'm the first person to point the finger at him is because there were no autopsies in those days. There was no police force. There were no forensics. There was no possibility of anybody finding Argentine guilty of poisoning those boys at all. And he knew it. It's so hard to imagine, though, their doctor had spent so much time with these boys especially Edward, you, you, you would think that he would have some, you know, affinity for him to just kill him, you know, and, and then the doctor goes on to work for Henry VII. Yes, he does. And here we have another murder, of course. He, he continued in the services of Henry, having, having worked for Edward IV. Uh, he, he then um, jumps ship, quite literally. Uh, I personally believe he had the boys' bodies taken down the River Thames and dumped in an area called the Black Deeps, one of the deepest areas of the river, before sailing on to France to join with Henry. Clearly, Argentine didn't tell Henry what he'd done because Henry has no knowledge about the princes. That's why he was so afraid about imposters like uh, Simnel and Warbeck. He thinks they really are the boys and he can't take the chance that they're not. So he didn't know from John Argentine that the boys were actually dead. Only Argentine knew that. So um, Argentine um, ingratiated himself with Henry, uh, who once he became king, of course, needed uh, a royal position. And so uh, Argentine is back in the old job. He is looking after Henry's eldest son, Arthur. Now, Arthur was older than the two boys in the tower. He was uh, 16, just turned 16 when he died. He died at Ludlow, which is where Edward V had been brought up, uh, a castle, of course, that uh, Argentine would have known well. Um, the big difference is that by the time of his death, Arthur was married. He had just got married to Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish princess. And Catherine became ill too. Just briefly, she recovered and went on, of course, to, to marry Arthur's little brother, Henry, who became Henry VIII. But the symptoms that uh, we know Arthur exhibited were not the same as any that were known at the time. At the time, there was a disease called the sweat or the sweating sickness, which uh, was rampant in England in 1502, but that killed very quickly. I mean, literally within 24 hours, you were dead. It wasn't always fatal, of course, you could survive, but if you were gonna die, you were gonna die within 24 hours. Arthur was ill for over a week uh, and the symptoms actually fit arsenic poisoning. So Argentine changes his MO slightly from the mercury he used on the princes in the tower to the arsenic he uses on another prince of Wales, Arthur. Now, I agree with you entirely. Uh, isn't it bizarre that this man who must have had feelings, surely, for Edward and Richard in the tower, who may even have had feelings for Arthur, although he can't have known him all that well, they weren't, they weren't together uh, that often. Um, how can a man like that actually kill his charges? Um, doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, and they did in Argentine's day as well. And the, the first part of that is first do no harm. Whatever else you do, do no harm. So he's breaking his Hippocratic oath. He is breaking the oath of, a, of a, a, a rational, caring human being. But if I'm right, that he's a narcissist, 
and a psychopath and a Machiavellian, then those things override the normal emotions. H.H. Uh, Holmes was a doctor in Chicago who, who murdered adults and children, but money was his, his primary motivation. That That is the most common reason, um, and H.H. H. Holmes is a, a brilliant example of it. Um, the the situation isn't always that that cut and dried though. It, there is in in England, there was in England in the eighteen forties uh, a doctor called William Palmer, uh, and he killed for gain. Uh, he killed possibly up to sixty people, uh, all of them uh, to get money out of them or property or or both. So his his motive was uh, very obvious and very clear. In the case of Harold Shipman, though, who I mentioned earlier, only one of his 213 victims, uh, did he get anything from? He got her to uh, write a will in his favour so that she left him all her inheritance. That's one out of 213. So there is no financial motive for Harold Shipman. There must be something else. And that something else, uh, as I think is true of Argentine, is the God complex. So so I'm just curious, what is some of the feedback that you've gotten from fans of this case about your Dr. Argentine theory. I, I wish I could tell you, Eric, I haven't had any feedback whatsoever. Uh, the, book, the book came out nearly two years ago now, and uh, it's been deathly quiet. Uh, and I find this very interesting because um, if, if you come out with a theory like this, you are normally shot down instantly. Uh, some years ago, I in Jack the Ripper Quest for a Killer, uh, I named uh, a new suspect for the Ripper. Um, and that immediately, of course, got howls of laughter from uh, various forums, or is it fora, um, uh, on the on the net. Uh, there is the Jack the Ripper forum, which is an extremely good one. Uh, and nobody really from that forum bought into my theory at all. Uh, I suspect the same would be true here. But what has happened in the case of Richard III, of course, is that we have two armed camps. We have those who are for Richard, in other words, he's a good guy. He can't possibly have been responsible for this or anything else. He is the most maligned king in British history. Or you have got the Lancastrians, the anti-Ricardians, uh, those who back the Tudors and say, of course he did. Uh, he's a killer. He's a monster. And uh, I, I think those polarised camps uh, are so strong, in, in the UK at least, that uh, nobody else uh, gets a look in at all. What I'm trying to do is to find a, another path which makes sense in terms of criminal history uh, rather than political history. And, and that's, that's the big jump that I don't think people can, can make. If you assume that the princes in the tower were killed for political reasons, then Argentine is neither here nor there. Take away the politics. Just say these are two boys whose lives are in the hands of a narcissist. And then you have a very different motivation and Argentine fits the bill. Is there any evidence out there that Argentine was a narcissist? 
He's arrogant. That's as far as we can go. He did write some poetry, all of it in in Latin. Uh, I have read this, but I, I'm not qualified to comment on on his poetry. I don't think it's very good. Uh, he wrote one medical treatise that has survived, uh, which is only partial, in which he talks about um, various cures that don't work. Uh, again, th- this is is not. Um, belittling him, I, I think it would have been it would have been cutting edge in its day. Uh, it's just that none of none of the science, or hardly any of the science of that period, actually did work. There were no cures uh, for anything, pretty well. Uh, he became um, pr- provost, uh, principal, if you like, uh, of uh, his old college, King's College, Cambridge, and he has a very sumptuous tomb there, still there to this day. Perhaps if uh, if if any of your listeners ever get across to uh, to Cambridge, England, uh, you can go into um, King's College and and the chapel there, and you can see Argentine's tomb. It's fantastic. It's a sumptuous thing. But a lot of people had sumptuous tombs made for themselves. You you can't really read too much into that. So the answer is no. We we have no other, other evidence about the kind of man he was at all. I can't say I'm surprised by that bearing in mind how long ago we're talking about, how, how flimsy the record is. That, that's obviously the biggest challenge. Uh, this was so long ago. It's all so speculative. But that Mancini report does offer a tiny glimpse into the lives of the princes in that period of time before they disappear. Yes, I, it's the only one. Uh, if you look at other sources, there is uh, a source by a man named John Rouse, who was a, a chantry priest in Warwick. He, he must have met Richard. He wrote um, a, a glowing description of the new king, Richard III, and his wife, Anne Neville, who lived in, in the castle in Warwick, uh, where John Rouse uh, lived. Uh, he, he wrote um, the, the, this glowing account with gorgeous drawings of, of them both, with heraldry, a kind of family tree. When Richard was alive, as soon as Richard was dead, uh, he wrote a different version, um, accusing him of, of all kinds of horrors. He doesn't, funnily enough, accuse him of murdering the princes. But he does come out with this nonsensical story uh, that Richard was um, born uh, having been carried by his mother for two years rather than the usual nine months. He was born with teeth and he was born with long hair, that he was deformed, uh, that he had a withered arm uh, and a hunched back with one shoulder much higher than the other. We now know, of course, because we found Richard's body in the astonishing find in the car park in Leicester, that the only deformity the king had was scoliosis, which might have made one shoulder appear higher than the other, but it wouldn't have been very marked. There was nothing wrong with his arms at all. In fact, we know he fought in battle uh, and killed people uh, face to face. So it's a pretty tough cookie. Uh, so we know that that Rouse was making it up, but people love to read about that. They, they love to hear about deformities because they believed, of course, that physical deformity equals cruelty. Uh, if you have a twisted body, then you must have a twisted mind. Therefore, it's quite possible that you can do anything. We have another uh, source, uh, the second anonymous Croyland continuator. I, I just love that. We don't know who this guy is, hence anonymous. Uh, Croyland was an abbey in, uh, in Lincolnshire, I think. Uh, and this guy talks about the events of Richard's reign, not about the death of the princes. Again, he is anti 
Richard. We've already talked about Thomas More and his account, the, the only account of the princes. Uh, so the only thing Mancini himself says about the princes is not that they were murdered, but that, that they died. And he doesn't say who was responsible. He doesn't blame Richard. Uh, that comes from Thomas More. Hmm. So I can't let you go without asking you this, because it is such an important part of the lore surrounding the story of the two princes. In 1674, uh, the, the bones, the remains of two children were found beneath a staircase in the Tower of London. Can you talk more about this and, and what people who have examined these remains have concluded? Yep, you're, you're quite right. Um, in 1674, this is the reign of Charles II, uh, they were uh, rebuilding a section of the tower. It was, it was no longer a castle in the, in the true sense, but it still had royal connections. And in digging uh, at the foot of a stairwell, they found some human bones jumbled up. The various powers that be looked at, the, looked at these bones, and, and the people who looked at them were actually uh, the clerk of works, in other words, the, the guy in charge of the building program, uh, who took them to the king himself, to Charles II, uh, and they both agreed that, yes, yes, this was probably the bones of the princes in the tower, Edward and Richard. Uh, they had no evidence whatsoever to suggest that this was the case, but they knew the story from Thomas More and Shakespeare that these boys were buried uh, somewhere in the tower, possibly at the foot of, the st of some stairs, and therefore it seemed to fit perfectly. Uh, okay, so that's fine. Uh, the bones were assumed to be the royal princes and they were buried accordingly in Westminster Abbey uh, in uh, a tomb designed by Christopher Wren, who was the leading architect of the day. He was the guy who redesigned uh, London after the Great Fire of 1666. Uh, and that's where they are to this day. The bones are still there. The tomb is still there with a Latin inscription saying that they are Edward V and his brother Richard of York. In 1933, eventually, a lot of pressure was put on the powers that be, uh, the authorities at, West, at Westminster and the royal family, because it's, it's a royal chapel. It's under joint ownership of the church, now, of course, the Church of England uh, and the royal family. They both gave the consent for the tomb to be opened and the bones to be checked. So they were checked by two experts, two guys called Tanner and Wright. Tanner was in charge of public works. So again, he was a, a kind of glorified museum curator. He knew nothing about bones at all. Uh, Wright was the anatomist. He, he was the medical man. He was the expert. And, and so they were his findings, but it was Tanner who wrote the report. They weren't allowed to take the bones out of the abbey. Today, of course, this would be done in a, a laboratory and uh, it would be done in, in full um, scientific fig like an autopsy. Um, that wasn't allowed, so they had to work in the abbey itself. Um, they measured the bones and came to the conclusion that, yes, they were probably Edward and Richard. In other words, Charles II and co. had got it right back in 1674. The bones were photographed uh, and uh, uh, redressed in linen and put back in the tomb. Now, a number of people have tried since then to have the tomb reopened using modern 
investigative techniques using today's science, which of course is far advanced of anything they had in the 1930s. But the powers that be refuse. It's quite interesting that now we have a new king, it is just possible that Charles III might give his consent for the tomb to be opened. I hope he does. And when and if he does, they will find that those bones are not the bones of Edward and Richard at all. Uh, how do I know this? Uh, I know this because um, the bones don't fit the right ages. Obviously, dating bones is a very difficult thing to do. We have carbon dating now, which they didn't have in the 1930s, but that is still a pretty vague science. We will be able to tell now whether the bones are those of boys or girls. They couldn't do that in the 1930s. You must realize it was a jumble of bones with a lot of other debris in it. They were not neat and laid out at all. In fact, one body seems to have been superimposed on top of the other. One skull is complete, the other one isn't. It's in, it's in pieces. All the teeth have gone from the skull that is still in, intact. Uh, and those teeth weren't there. They, they haven't been, been found. A lot of the small bones are missing, which often happens when you have um, bodies being moved from one grave to, to, to the next. In other words, we don't know uh, whether these are male or female bodies. We don't know how old they are. And the most bizarre thing is that there appear to be more bones than there should be for two bodies. In other words, there is part of a third body there as well. So we're not looking at two children, but three. In other words, these could be absolutely anybody. As I say in my book, we are talking about three anonymous Londoners. And I don't think, unless they open that tomb and prove otherwise, we're ever going to get any closer to the truth than that. Yeah, that, that's a mystery in itself, right? I mean, it's, if it's not the two princes, then who do those bones actually belong to? Yeah, it, 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 that itself needn't be anything suspicious, in fact. I, I said earlier that the, the tower was a very busy place. People lived there. Uh, they came and went all the time. There were servants, there were soldiers, there were guys who worked in the Royal Mint, people who kept the animals in the uh, zoo. Um, they, were, they were buried inside the tower because it was their home. Uh, there were at least um, four um, burial grounds that we know of inside the tower. It's, it, it's a big castle. It's a big area. Um, the best known is the Church of St. Peter at Vincula, but th there are three others, uh, and we, we found um, bones there before. It, it's odd to, to find these bones under a, a, a stairwell, I agree, but they could simply have been the children of people who, who worked in, in the tower. Um, and at one time, everybody knew whose bones they were. But of course, that's history for you, isn't it? The, uh, the record goes, uh, people forget, uh, generations pass on, and now we're none the wiser. Absolutely. Well, well, this has been so great. So uh, we talked on the last interview about how to find you, and I'll, I'll put a link to your Amazon author page in the show notes. Thanks again. This has been so interesting. My pleasure. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope I haven't bored your listeners to death. Ah, oh, I, I doubt that very much. Again, I have been speaking to MJ Tro. His book is called The Killer of the Princes in the Tower, a new suspect revealed. This has been another episode of the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, 
and have a safe tomorrow.